This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, July 18th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hey, Turkish military. Nice coup you got there. Would you borrow it from the first season of The Americans? This thing had a huge retro feel. Actual tanks in the actual streets and a takeover of one TV station. Because that's going to work. You got beat by FaceTime, Mr. Coup Plotter. You got beat by FaceTime. Yours was such a dispirited effort. I bet you'd have even been taken down by Periscope. Hell, Meerkat. But for all the incompetence and poor vision of the would-be rescuers of Turkey from autocracy and deliverer to martial law, I have to admit, I was not sure who to root for. You know, so much depended on who I chose as my rooting interest. But I got to tell you, I mean, what you had here was military takeover against democratically elected leader. That really should be all you need to know. The problem is I know a little bit more about Turkey. I know, as The Guardian phrased it, that Recep Tayyip Erdogan was conducting his own slow motion coup for years. He was purging enemies. He was stripping the country of liberties. He was sacking judges who didn't give him the rulings he wanted. And have you read that in the last couple days, along with thousands of military and police who were not loyal to Erdogan, you know who else he's gone after? 1,500 members of the finance ministry. 3,000 judges and prosecutors have been suspended. I don't know. Maybe I didn't see the footage of them next to the tanks, that long phalanx of berobed jurists, the marauding magistrates, and behind them desperate to get their hands on slide rules of mass destruction, all those finance ministry workers. Erdogan, in all his statements, in his case to the world, really leaned on that phrase, democratically elected, like Joe Biden leans on from Scranton. Yeah, it was true once. It's not too relevant today. Or the analogy I thought of was Erdogan talked about himself being democratically elected. Like when OJ was charged with murder, he said he was being put on trial for being a black man in Los Angeles. In the case of each, they spent many years prior to the crisis point, trying to erase the very distinction they were now emphasizing. We are conditioned as good progressive Americans to believe elections good, tanks bad. But the military in Turkey is the country's most essential institution. And while the prominent role of the military, the central role of the military, maybe you could argue, you know, that's kept Turkey from being a Jeffersonian democracy in full flower. Yet it also is the thing that prevented Turkey from slipping into the status of Syria or Iraq or Iran. You know, exporters of terror and chaos, either by design or just sheer inability to stop it. This underlines the whole thing that we're seeing now. It shows you how methodical Erdogan is. Yeah, he's thuggish. Yeah, he's not immune to fits of pique. But like Putin, he's adept at capitalizing whenever an advantage presents itself. And now he's orchestrating the Turkish version of the Reichstag fire. Domestically, I think about Trump. But I don't think Trump could ever be this kind of strong man. He lacks the patience. He has only in his life been rewarded for the lashing out part, not the biding his time and playing the long game part. 
But I could be wrong to quote Erdogan himself. Democracy is like a streetcar. When you come to your stop, you get off. On the show today, I spiel about what Ghostbusters can tell us about Hillary Clinton's electoral chances. But first, maybe you know him as an actor, Big Love. He's Gavin Belson in Silicon Valley. But Matt Ross is also a director, and his new film starring Viggo Mortensen is quite a sight. Matt Ross, up next. Captain Fantastic is not a superhero movie. Well, it kind of is. Sort of a heroic dad, Viggo Mortensen. This guy commands the screen. And the first-time director for a feature film is Matt Ross, who you know if you've watched any really good HBO show in the last couple years or The Aviator. So Matt Ross is an actor. He directed Captain Fantastic, which uh, is opening in New York and L.A., and then we'll have a large rollout. And we were just talking about all the film festivals you were in, Cannes and Sundance and a bunch of others. Mm-hmm. Have you been to Cannes before? Never. First what, time. Do we have the best way to get movies out in America or the world? It seems really, oh, God, if you could invent a system, you would not invent this. I mean, reflecting upon Cannes, I would say, not having been there before, there's something intensely beautiful to me about a place that cares deeply about art film. The culture there is is a little confusing in that everyone's wearing tuxedos and gowns. It's very formal. And um, I didn't find it uptight, but it's, it's certainly formal. And yet, it, it you know, everyone is sort of racing, running, and jockeying to get to four-hour... Uh, Romanian f- art films that are in black and white, and <laughs> yeah. and and I, it, that's a dream to me. You know that that, that culture is. I, mean, I cherish that culture, and it's dying. You know that. Um, by, by the way, I was just going to correct you really quickly. This is the second film I've written and directed. Oh, yeah. oh that was a f- yeah. uh, twenty. Yeah. I didn't know twenty-eight hotel, hotel rooms. Hotel rooms. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is a feature what you didn't see it. Film. Well, you didn't I see did it. Not Mike, see it. come on. I got to the first seven hotel rooms, right, and but, then I was exactly. Out. Yeah. yeah. Well, eight people saw it. Uh, it's worth. <laughs> it's worth seeing. It's. Uh, it wants to be a Cassavetes movie. My joke about it when we were making it is, it's a. Uh, it's an it's a 1970s French movie in English. Yeah, and if you like that, um, it's there for you. Could I ask you a Silicon yeah, yeah, yeah. Valley of course, question? Of course. So you play Gavin Belson, right? Correct. That's the character's name. Yes. Billionaires are people too. We are leaders in technology, in industry, in finance. Look at history. Do you know who else vilified a tiny minority of financiers and progressive thinkers called the Jews? Wait, wait a minute. Did you just compare? The treatment of billionaires in America today to the plight of the Jews in Nazi Germany? Absolutely. One could argue that billionaires are actually treated worse. And we didn't even do anything wrong. We're an even smaller minority. There's a lot more of them. These are facts. They're all flawed characters. Except Gavin. Except Gavin is the most Un- flawed. Unflawed. But he's, but he's the one we're allowed to hate the most. True. Because he's made it. Yes. And he lords over the other guys. Correct. Whereas right. the other guys, we feel like they're underdogs. They are underdogs. But they're every bit, the, many of, most of them are every bit the dick that Gavin is. Correct. But that right. tells us something about masculinity and manliness too, that all those other characters are telling themselves, I'm the underdog and I'm not being a dick because I haven't made it yet. Untrue. Untrue. Well, you're getting to the core of the story problem in some ways. And um, Mike Judge and Alec Berg, who are the, the showrunners, talk about this a lot. You know, the idea that the show needs to balance 
their success and failure because how long can they go on as underdogs before being absurd and you tie the story, the audience tiring of that dynamic. But then once they become successful, is that something that we care about? Because then are they then just going to become Gavin Belson? And I think the show will probably end up exploring that a little bit towards the end because you, you know, they've been underdogs for three years. I mean, the thing that I find so remarkable about the show that I didn't realize when I first read it is it's such um, a great inside look at, at at the workplace. I mean, it's a comedy, yeah. but for specifically in the tech industry, it seems an accurate portrayal People of what crazy. of 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 what it's like to actually work in that I environment. Hear that all you know? the time, and I didn't. I'm not in that industry. I'm not either. It's on my culture, hear that, and they yeah. say, yeah, perfectly. but it seems that way, yeah. and and yet it's a comedy. It's, it's very carefully and intelligently observed. And the, one of the great things about the show, also that I find, is that it really punctures the myth that Silicon Valley is solving our problems. You know, it is solving the problems of people who work in Silicon yes, Valley. Correct. And that's a problem, correct, I think, correct. societally. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think, yeah. you're right. I, think my, I think they would agree with you. It seems to me that a lot of people who start off as actors and then become directors or writers, or at least that's how we know you, mm. you concentrate on characters sure. really intently. And this Vigo Mortensen character is unique and well-observed. And I don't think, I don't know, but I don't think someone who hadn't really thought about acting a lot would necessarily have constructed him. Perhaps. I, you know, I don't know. The, the, the truth is, and you said it, I'm recognized as an actor. I started making short films when I was 12 years old. I've been, when you're 12, you're not really writing them. They're just pictures in your head mm-hmm. and you get your friends together. And I made such epic opuses as Attack of the Killer Chairs. I don't know if you're familiar with that film. Yeah, I made it when I was 12. It's fantastic. You should yeah. see it. Um, they were all in that vein. Was that like a Chekhov Attack of the Com- uh, Killer it, Tomatoes mashup? Was yeah, that essentially yeah. It was, it was yeah. more based on um, our Arms in the Man, Shaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Armchairs in the Yeah, Armchairs yeah. in the Man. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Good. You got, it. You got the reference. Uh, no, it's a, a bunch of ki- uh, chairs that kill people. Uh, it's nonsensical <laughs> it's and terrible. Um, my desire, uh, it depends on when I'm writing, it depends on the, the subject, and w- uh, but I do frequently start with character. And, and in this case, the, the film was very much inspired by being a father, by being a parent, and I had a lot of questions about being a father yeah. and about my values, what I wanted to pass on, what was important to me in the very brief time my children are in my household. And so the, the, it started with the character of Ben Cash, played by Viggo Mortensen, yeah. The training is over today. Can we take Steve somewhere for class later? Maybe. Why does Mommy have to be gone so long? She hasn't been gone very long. Actually, it's been three months, two weeks, six days, and 11 hours. Mom is very ill. Don't talk to us like we're your inferiors. Well, is right. Mom needs to be in the hospital right now. But you said hospitals are only a great place to go if you're a healthy person and you want to die. You said Americans are undereducated and overmedicated. You said the AMA are avaricious whores only tooling to spread their fat legs for big pharma. All of those things are true, but mom does not have enough of the neurotransmitter serotonin to conduct electrical signals in her brain. Exactly when is mom coming back? That's what I'm going to go find out. Be good, monkey butts. See you later, Dad. Bye. Bye, guys. It seems to me, I was just reading an interesting piece about the difference between parenting, this verb parenting, and Mm. being a parent, and the piece endorsed the idea of being a parent rather than this process that you think too much about. Mm. But 
Is there some aspect to it that we put so much anxiety on the role of parenting? And here you have this guy played by Viggo Mortensen, who has really strong ideas and I think excellent values, but he doesn't really seem affected by the parent industrial complex per se. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think that uh, Viggo's character is practicing a form of conscious parenting. Yeah. Uh, for me, the character and his parenting style or the way he chooses to be a parent is is aspirational. It's extreme. You know, he's this idea that he's given up whatever professional creative ambitions he may have had to devote every waking moment to his child is the most extreme form of conscious parenting. You know, the most extreme. Most of, most of us are just doing the best we can, fumbling along in the dark. You take your kids to school. You try and help them as much as you can. But this is a man who's devoted every waking moment and with his wife in the film. I think it's admirable. I mean, he's, he's, you know, the other thing is for those who haven't seen the film, it's, it's bookended in a way um, with a tragedy and there's grief. So he doesn't always behave in the most admirable way possible. The two roles that I know you most from are mm. Big Love yes. and Silicon Valley. Yes. Both those shows are about a man's place in the world. This is very much to me about a man's place in the world, a father's place in the world, a man's place in the world, navigating that in the present. So I was wondering if that was coincidence or on your mind. Uh, I had never thought about it in terms of my acting. I am obsessed with that as a writer, certainly. Sometimes I phrase it, you know, life is very short. What are you going to do? What kind of person are you going to be? And I'm a man, so it's what kind of man are you going to be? And I'm, I am obsessed with issues of masculinity. And um, certainly we have many stereotypes culturally about what it is to be a man or masculine stereotypes. And, and I would like to subvert those as, or as much as possible, or at least make them de- depict uh, masculinity all its, you know, in all its many shades. But not all of them. I mean, the nurturing part, the strength part, the model of behavior part, those are important things. Yeah. And yeah. I think the big things about fatherhood, he gets right. Vigo gets right. I agree. Uh, intention and also effort. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he's he's teaching his children to be tolerant, compassionate human beings. He's he's training them to be critical thinkers, right. which I think is vital. Uh, voracious readers, and you know, I mean, he's he's teaching them to navigate the world in a way that I think is important and, and admirable. Yeah. Now, Steve Hahn's character and Catherine no, Steve, Hahn. Steve Zahn and Catherine, Catherine Hahn's yes. character—they're yeah. really fleshed the, the out. The Zahns, yes, the Zahns, the yeah. Hahn family. They're really fleshed out in a way that maybe, again, I'm reading into it. You've played probably the second or third character on a bill, and you always wanted something. You always appreciate something meaty to play. Yeah, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. The other way of looking at it is I just think it's better writing, right? Of you know, it's yeah. like they're, they're complex people. They are not they're not the villains either. They have they present a different parenting angle. I mean, the film, there's, I've, I've said this many times before, and I think it's true, there, there are many Americas within the United States of America, sure. and our film, I mean, there are thousands, maybe perhaps millions. Our film only shows three, and and in a way through the prism of parenting. And, you know, uh, the, you see the, a rural America, you see a suburban America, you see a kind of wealthy golf club or a gated community kind of environment. And each one has their own either political bent or certainly parenting style or attitude about parenting. But it was our responsibility, my responsibility, and the actor's responsibility, I think, to portray each one with 
complexity and humanity. And I, you know, when we came to casting those characters, the Steve Zahn and Catherine Hahn, I didn't want them to be monsters or caricatures. I wanted them to be real people. They have good taste. If you look yeah. around, they have like jazz albums on the, you know, around. They're, they have good taste, or what yeah. I think is good taste. And you don't want to put kind of the they're not worst, caricatures, right? You don't want to put the worst arguments of that. Let's call That's it parenting right. style in That's their right. mouths. That's you right. Wanna, it, That's it, right. It, it works better. You know, tension works better when there's yeah. something real to. That's butt right. Up and against. then you and the audience think, well, yeah. I thought he was right, but she's actually making an excellent mm-hmm. point. Maybe she's right. And yeah. that's, that, I mean, that's what I think, if it allows you to reflect a little bit, that's helpful. And that's really what they're doing. They're reflecting on his ideas and forcing you, therefore, to reflect on your own. And and that's all. That's all you hope for. And and all with, you know, and when you have Catherine Hahn and Steve Zahn, you also laugh. Yeah. Because they're great comedians. Yeah. Was this the most intense or just the most you've worked with child actors? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's six kids in every scene. Yeah. Every scene. How old so, was the youngest? He was six turning seven. And was it the play by the same actor? Or was Charlie it one Shotwell, of those twins yeah. No, 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 no. We had the same kids the whole time. <laughs> you didn't marry no, no. Kate Nashley that no, one? No, 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 no. Which, which is difficult because, you know, um, because of child labor laws, which, by the way, are a good thing. Sure. Um, but <laughs> He's it, post it, it, in that, Matt <laughs> yeah, That's right. That's exactly right. But it requires, you know, it's it, 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 the, the problem with that clearly is that they can only work so many hours a day. Yeah. So that becomes a logistical challenge. Yeah. Are they sometimes then in scenes that, or are there scenes that are shoot supposed to them. have them? Yeah, them sometimes you shoot just, around them. Yeah. You start wider and then sometimes have to go closer and you have to sometimes get their their stuff first and right. then, then excuse them and shoot around them. It happens less than, it happened for us less than one might think, but, but it certainly, you certainly hit that. How old are your children? Nine and 13. What about acting with them? Uh, you know, I don't live in L.A., yeah. so they're not around it so much. I mean, they they came to Sundance. They came they live to in America. And they know true. what their dad no, does. No, no, you're right. That's yeah. a very good point. Um, but we live in Berkeley, which is a city in America, mm-hmm. but outside of America. Yeah, right? that's not. Spalding Gray used to say he lived in New York City because he wanted to live in a city off the coast of America between Amer- between the U.S. and Europe, which I thought was brilliant. I can't use the same joke for Berkeley. Um, you know, uh, right, we no live in Northern and California. There's no New Yorker cover to confirm that joke. Exactly. exactly yes. no. So uh, we live in Northern California. Um, so we're a little removed from the culture of Los Angeles. My my son, who's nine, wants to work in video games, and my daughter is a gymnast, and I don't think she knows what she wants to do. And and acting is not something we've ever discussed. I'm my brother's a musician. My mother, who raised us, was very open to whatever we wanted to do, and never said, "You'll you know you can't do that. You'll never make a living. You need a backup." It was like that's what your passion is. You should follow it. And I would do the same with my children. You know, I th- feel like there's no way you can articulate to a child the difficulty of actually making a living in any in any field. And I always say that everything is hard. Whatever you, whatever yeah. you're going to do. I mean, if you want to be a lawyer, there's a gazillion lawyers. You know, that's everything is competitive. So uh, yeah. I would say uh, I have a nine and seven year old, and we haven't really gotten to any big talks. But when it comes to that, I am not going to emphasize follow your dreams. I am going to emphasize <laughs> get expertise. Now, well, like if that. you are a great musician and if you are a great actor, I could I would never tell but anyone so, not to act. Yeah, but, right. So follow your dreams to me means nothing if you're sitting around dreaming, but actually become great at something yeah, craft craft exactly. yeah well i absolutely and absolutely i think that's something that vigo's character would say yeah i agree i always knew what i wanted to do from a very young age i it's it's changed and morphed but when i was 11 or 12 i saw films and knew i wanted to work in that industry i thought it was magic it was my church and i in the beginning i wanted to do special effects uh, I didn't know really what a director did. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't know anyone wrote those things. You know, you watch something and they're seamless. They're like a fever dream. You have no idea, really. I didn't. Uh, it wasn't until later that I, I really formulated 
um, desire to do those specific things. Uh, yeah, special so. effects seems it. It makes sense to me that kids are into sci-fi movies and comic book movies because special effects are explicitly magical. Yes. But then when you get into what making a movie is, you realize it's all magical. In fact, a greater magic is to pull off this stuff that just scans as everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's true. That's all right. True. We're going to leave it on my great observation then, not well, Matt's. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Ross is the director of Captain Fantastic. It's. Uh, in theaters, probably near you, depending on where you are, if you're off the coast of America, halfway to or partway to Europe. Matt, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This one. And now the spiel. Police deaths in Baton Rouge, race relations in the U.S., the Freddie Gray trial, the Republican National Convention, the Turkish coup. I think what I really need to talk about is Ghostbusters. All right, listen, we'll get to the other things eventually. Tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, we will talk about tonight's presenters at the RNC, prospective first lady Melania Trump and actor Scott Baio. Actor, actor Scott Baio. I was on IMDb between 2009 and 2014, six years. His entire oeuvre consisted of one episode of Arrested Development, which is legit, Bob Loblaw, totally legit, and something called the Kelsey Grammer Bill Zucker Comedy Hour, which as far as I can tell is a YouTube video put out by this guy Bill Zucker that racked up 2,000 views. The only other thing that Bill Zucker has ever done is a song about tarp. <laughs> Scott Baio was also in something during this. Is the only other credit he has during those five years is something called Wrong Hole, which Hollywood Reporter describes as a song about anal sex. The video, which features Scott Baio, racked up 7 million hits. I don't know, Scott Bayo. I really screwed up last night. Come on, talk to me. Tell me what happened. No, don't. I mean, when Saturday Night Live mocks how lame a Trump celebrity-studded convention would look, they wouldn't even be able to throw out Scott Bayo as a mockable name because he's not even relevant enough to occur to the audiences, oh, that's a guy who's a has-been. They don't even know he ever was. But back to... Back to Mike Pence. No, not back to Mike Pence. We'll get to Mike Pence. We could also have talked about that disastrous rollout. But I need to mention Ghostbusters because I think Ghostbusters tells us something about sexism as it relates to national politics. Ghostbusters did not perform well at the box office. Not a total bomb. It made $46 million. It has a budget of $144 million, really $154 million minus rebates and taxes. But the leading tracking service, which predicted how well it would do, said it would have made $54 million, underperformed that by 15%. Now they're saying it might not even earn back its money. Why? Was it bad? No, it was pretty good. The Critics gave it seven and a half stars out of 10 on average on Rotten Tomatoes. So what held back Ghostbusters? Was it the ghost bros? Bros are the traveler? Yeah, pretty much that's the case. Walt Hickey on 538 did a analysis of Ghostbusters, and he found out that angry men were tanking the average score on IMDb. I looked at his the stats today. They're crazy. Remember, this was a movie that got good reviews and that everyone knew about. Even the bad reviews, at worst, use phrases like funny in places or amusing enough. 35,000 users on IMDb, 12,000 of those 35,000 gave it a one star out of 10 star ratings. Who was doing this? They have the gender breakdown. Average star rating of men, four and a half stars, of women, eight stars. 
So you might say, wait a minute, shouldn't the average then be higher than the you know 5.2 average it got? In fact, in real life, 57% of the people who saw Ghostbusters were women. Yes, but of the people rating Ghostbusters, you know, trying to get back at Ghostbusters on IMDb, 18,000 men, 6,000 women. How does this relate to the presidential race? Clearly, Slimer, nope, not that. I believe that Hillary Clinton's greatest asset is that she is running against Donald Trump. I believe that her biggest liability is stuff that she did. But I do also believe that it is a liability, not an asset, that she is a woman, despite what some pundits would have you believe. And frankly, if Hillary Clinton were a man, I don't think she'd get 5% of the vote. Maybe you're saying, of course, that's true. But listen, when Barack Obama got the nomination, the conventional wisdom was that he'd be running into a lot of headwinds because he was the first African-American major party candidate. Yet exit polls showed that his status as a black man helped him in the eyes of more voters than it didn't. Maybe they were lying to pollsters. Maybe they had great motivations. Maybe they had questionable motivations. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell in episode one of the Revisionist History podcast used the phrase moral licensing, which means, quote, the idea that when a door opens for an outsider, it usually usually just gives the status quo justification to close the door again. And maybe that was happening. But if you look at Democratic nominee Barack Obama, I'm not talking about his life story before and how his race factored into or hindered his climb. I'm talking about once he was the Democratic nominee, the empirical evidence indicates that his race was more an asset than a liability. I do not think this is going on with Hillary Clinton, and I don't think it will go on. And Ghostbusters tells us something about that. Granted, there are a lot of racists, and granted, there are a lot of sexists, and those people would never vote for an African-American or a woman. And let's also note, before 2008, there were 55 presidential elections. The top two vote-getters in each of those were white men. Uh, The top three vote-getters, if you want to talk about third-party candidates, were all white and male. So I'm talking about the 41 third-party candidates ever to get more than 1% of the popular vote. I'm talking about the 108 major party candidates ever to get any bit of the popular vote. Historic advantage to white men. But the fact is that the vast majority of America does not want to be seen as racist. They desperately don't want to be seen as racist. Maybe not the online comment section of America, but the real-life version would be appalled if they were accused of racism. If someone, some black person they knew, whispered the suggestion that they were racist, among their initial reaction of the white person would be shame. I do believe that. On the other hand, I think that if male America were accused of sexism, some part would feel really bad about it, but I think the majority reaction would be something like, oh, shut up, stop whining. I'm not in any way touching what's the bigger problem, racism or sexism. That's the wrong question. I'm saying that racism and sexism present themselves in different ways. And most whites really don't want to be seen as racist. And most men couldn't care less about the charge of sexism. And this is what Ghostbusters shows us. There have been a lot of white movies, which is to say for much of U.S. history, movies that were later recast with black casts or black actors in the lead role. Some have been duds. Some have been flops. The critics didn't like. The public didn't want to see. But there was The Nutty Professor. There was Will Smith in I Am Legend. There was 
Disney's The Princess and the Frog. And those were all real big successes. What we don't see in those cases from the majority of people talking about these movies is a backlash. I can't believe they're doing this with a black cast. You saw a little bit of that with Annie. I can't believe Daddy Warbucks is Jamie Foxx. But mostly... People didn't see Annie because Annie wasn't a good movie. But with Ghostbusters, you saw the sexism proudly, unabashedly, not just in comment sections, but in but from people who do this for a living, without a thought or a worry that these people would be called sexist, that beyond being called sexist, that there actually would be a fairly compelling case that they were sexist. So not only do men not feel terribly sensitive about engaging in casual sexism. I don't feel that most men feel a real impetus to vote for a woman to show that they're not sexist, to even prove it for themselves. I think people felt good about themselves for pulling the lever for Barack Obama, first black president. I think that white America, or the portions of white America that engaged in this behavior, felt good about itself when it pulled the lever for Barack Obama as first black president. I do not get the sense that most of male America feels the same way about voting for the first woman president. Of course, we're talking specifics. It's voting for this woman to be the first woman president. And it's all a supposition, and it's extremely hard to prove. Because if Hillary Clinton wins, the fact that she's not a man will be much less important to most voters than the fact that She's not that specific man. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson, just producer, is working on the story of a Marine who tries to take on those rich kids from the camp across the lake. Anti-tank missile gunner, bummer summer. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slave Podcast, is sitting on the story of a Canadian military officer trying to raise a herd of moose for some reason. Lieutenant Irrelevant. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is sitting on the story of a Marine who tries to take on those rich kids from the camp across the lake. Anti-tank missile gunner, bummer summer. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, working on a movie about a single dad who's in charge of not only four lovable moppets, but the boilers, fuel, auxiliary engines, and feed systems on a ship. Second assistant engineer without peer. The gist opening in theater soon. Our biopic of George Cruz McGee, Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, extraordinaire. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.